Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Thirty Years' War series on 17th Century Warfare, Episode 9. Last time we looked at Dutch and Spanish methods of making war, and we asked what it was that made the new Dutch style, developed in the 1590s, so effective. We also learned that even while the Dutch were the first to make use of fire-by-rank, mass-volley styles of manual drill, with illustrated drill manuals to follow, they were not the first to think deeply about the best means for making war. Contrary to what Michael Roberts's military revolution theory claimed, the Spanish were not resting on their laurels, and actually released several revealing treatises in the last few decades of the 1500s, which demonstrated the Spanish eagerness to learn, develop and reform. That the Dutch performed the new approach to warfare did not mean that Maurice of Nassau was its only proponent but he soon became its most famous. In this episode, we're going to keep looking at the drill, and we're going to try and give you guys a feel for what these battles would have been like, and what they would have been like to live through if you were there on the battlefield. For sure, the increased firepower which the fire-by-rank mass volleys could bring to bear was impressive, but it was bound to create scenes straight out of hell with all that lead flying around. Maybe this sounds a little bit intimidating to you. In case you weren't aware, my name is Zach Twomley. This is When Diplomacy Fails, and we're taking the Thirty Years' War Apart piece by very bloody piece. Those of you who may not be aware of what's going on, maybe delay this episode a bit and catch up with what we're doing. This is, after all, the ninth of a series of episodes, so maybe check out the previous eight if you haven't already. Otherwise, if you're following along and you're all happy that we've restarted this 30 years war series thanks for joining us and stay tuned as i take you to the first few decades of the 17th century in advancing towards an enemy musketeers must always give fire by ranks after this manner two ranks must always make ready together and give fire first the first rank as soon as the first rank are fallen away the second must immediately present and give fire, and fall back after them. Now, as soon as the first two ranks do move from their places in the front, the two ranks next to them must unshoulder their muskets and make ready, and all the other ranks, through the whole division, must do the same by twos, one after another. 
In such a way did an official memo from the Dutch States General describe their newly tried and tested musketry drill. Maurice of Nassau, it seemed, had created something which was well worth talking about. The lessons learned in that campaign of 1600, which ended the following year, were consistently updated over the following years, so that by 1618, the States General, that is the Dutch government, wrote of a reconsidered exercise for musketeers, wherein the first two ranks get ready, take aim and fire, and so on until all the ranks have fired. Impressive though it certainly was, Maurice's achievements were not felt in the strategic improvement of the Dutch position, but instead in the tactical evolution of the Dutch infantry. The fire by rank, mass volley idea, and the restructuring of infantry, in other words, did not lead to an end of the war with Spain. In addition, the horrors experienced by Maurice at the Battle of Newport seemed to have convinced him that discretion was the better part of valour. He would not fight another such pitched battle again for as long as he lived. One figure who may have influenced Maurice's reluctance to fight another battle was William Lodwick, the individual who had theorised alongside the Prince of Orange to develop the now vaunted infantry drill. Lodwick was equally, if not more, hesitant about engaging in another battle like Newport, and the following explanation from Lodwick himself gives a hint as to why. In 1601, Lodwick had opposed another opposition to Flanders because it involved the risk of a battle, and in 1602, he begged Maurice to avoid undertaking anything that is not justified on military grounds. And a few weeks after that panicked memo, he sent Maurice the following message. We must conduct our affairs so that they are not subject to the risk of battle, since losing one would immediately bring the prize of the Dutch Republic in its wake. I beg you not to be won over by the false reproaches of those who know nothing about war. Your Excellency should rather remain true to your own judgment, which is not to engage in battle, except in extreme necessity. For the zeal I feel towards our country as well as towards your Excellency, I recommend the last words that Fabius Maximus said on the subject to Aemilius Paulus before the Battle of Cannae, that, if no one shall give Hannibal battle this year, the man will remain in Italy only to perish, or will leave it in flight. This succession of stark warnings held an underlying theme, that battles were a risk, and of far less risk, was the more common and more decisive siege which would proceed to characterise warfare in the Low Countries over the coming century. In fact, so absent of pitched battles was Europe, that by 1631, an English observer made the following note about warfare. Indeed, our actions in war are nowadays only sieges of cities. Battles we hear not of, save only a few in France and that of Newport in the Low Countries. But this manner will not last always, nor is there any conquest to be made without battles. Such a view would be vindicated later that year, when in September 1631, the Battle of Breitenfeld was fought, and Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden won his greatest triumph, making use of the tactics which Maurice of Nassau had first tested. Yet, while the Englishman quoted above may not have heard of other pitched battles, there were instances before Breitenfeld where the tactics learned from the Dutch were brought to bear. One example is provided by the Siege of Estragon, yet another chapter in the saga of Habsburg-Ottoman Wars. It was there in Hungary that Turkish soldiers attacked their Habsburg enemy, 
making use of volley fire in order to do it. According to the Ottoman Secretary of the Artillery, who recorded these events in his chronicle, describing perfectly what the musketrel actually looked like, In the middle of the field, the Janissary regiments stood in three ranks, each musketeer with matches ready to fire, and they lined up the big cannons chained in front of the Janissaries. Then, after the first rank of the Janissaries fires their muskets, the second fires two. Afterwards, the rank that fired first bends double and begins to reload their muskets, and as the third rank fires, the second rank in front of them bends and prepares their muskets. Then the first rank stands up and fires their muskets again. If the Dutch used these tactics in 1600, and the Turks used them only a few years later, at the Siege of Estergom in 1605, then the question was how such tactics were diffused between different armies in such a short space of time. This, indeed, is one of the key questions of the entire military revolution. How did other powers learn of the Trace Italienne? How did the transformation of the military contract in early modern Europe spread across different societies? How was the idea of the drill spread? And why did it enjoy more acceptance in some states rather than others? One historian believed that the desertion of some Habsburg soldiers into Ottoman service explained the diffusion of the musket drill to the Ottoman Empire. These soldiers, these mercenary soldiers, were in fact French mercenaries who were eager to spread the Dutch ideas around. We do know that the Ottoman Sultan received a letter about the Battle of Newport a few months after it had taken place, so he may well have been clued in from that and adopted the relevant lessons from it. As John A. Lynn wrote, Viewed from the French perspective, the Dutch creation of drill in particular rates as an absolutely crucial innovation with profound implications both on the battlefield and beyond it. Drill developed by Maurice and further extended by Gustavus enabled manoeuvre and a rate of fire unknown before. This promise of tactical effectiveness lured French officers to the Netherlands and northern Germany where they might learn the craft of war from the Dutch or the Swedes. In the vast majority of cases, military training was quite minimal. Weapon handling and efficiency were taught in the beginning, and once these lessons had been absorbed, soldiers were considered trained. This process could take anything from two weeks to two years, though the average was somewhere in between, and recruits were generally stationed in a place where they would learn from veterans, rather than be inducted into any kind of training camp per se, though such training camps did of course exist in some places. There was no sense of a need for constant regular practice though, and surprisingly little was actually done to improve obedience, discipline and good order. These qualities were taken for granted instead, and little effort was made to inculcate them into the soldier during the limited training. All of this changed with the reforms instituted by Maurice of Nassau though, as much because of what this new drill meant for the battlefield as it did for the soldier. In order to complete the detailed movements which would bring the most firepower to bear on the enemy, instruction manuals were developed so that captains could train their men in the drill and ensure their universal proficiency. Yet to be in a position to hear and obey these orders, not to mention remember them in the heat of battle, were tasks just as difficult and novel to the soldier as the very notion of firing by rank. As John A. Lynn noted, It is not stretching a point to say that in the name of tactical necessity, drill ingrained habits of obedience 
which affected the soldiers' conduct and heightened the officers' control off and on of the battlefield. But first, before we go any further, I want to clear something up. A note on Tertios. Tertios, or Tertios as I was calling them in the last episode, was the name of the Spanish battle formation. It's spelled T-E-R-C-I-O, and because I don't know Spanish and don't know pronunciation, and because you're all very, very patient with me, you should know that I pronounced it wrong, and then I thought that I was pronouncing it right, but I was actually pronouncing it wrong again. My pronunciation of this word has gone from Tercio to Turkio to Turkio to Tertio, so... It's going all over the place, but now we've landed on Tertio, which I'm told is correct. I'm probably still pronouncing it wrong, but either way, that's that's the word, and that's what we're going to go with. But what you should know, and the reason why I need to bring this confounded word up again, is because, thanks to the Tertio, the act of marching together in order was not unknown. But in Maurice's case, and what Maurice did differently to the Tertios, was the fact that he required more from his men than just simply marching in an arranged order. The Tertio squares had been defensively sound, but they had not been very efficient at bringing firepower to bear, because generally only the front of the Tertio square would fire at the enemy. For the officer commanding the Tertio, this meant that he would only have to coordinate a select portion of his men to fire at any one time, maybe the first or second line of men of the square, in other words. In Maurice's new regiment, though, all Dutch soldiers would be expected to offload their shot in a coordinated set-piece arrangement, which ensured that there was always some kind of projectile in the air. As we have established, the major advantage of the Tertio was its defensive soundness, since its square arrangement, with pikes in the centre and muskets at the front, meant that it was ready for anything. Because the Dutch were sacrificing this defence of soundness for greater firepower, it meant that they were more vulnerable as a group to the countercharges of cavalry or even ambitious pikemen infantry. Before the bayonet was developed and employed, it was necessary for another unit to take up this role of defence, so this meant that the Dutch soldier would have to be more manoeuvrable, more flexible and simply faster than his opponents. Dutch soldiers would have to be trained so effectively to ignore the rate of fire of their opponents and to act according to the instructions laid down in the manuals which were provided. Since no manuals were yet on hand at the Battle of Newport, for instance, Maurice got to see firsthand the challenges which his new drill faced, as well as the challenges which his soldiers overcame. The simple act of drilling and training as a unit for several years had instilled a sense of cohesion within Dutch soldiers on the battlefield, which had been absent from their compatriots throughout the preceding years of the Dutch Revolt. Maurice had effectively transformed the Dutch into professional soldiers before the Republic could be said to have an officially institutionalised professional army. This was actually noticed and acknowledged by the Spanish soldier as much as the Spanish king. The former, a veteran of the Army of Flanders, noted in 1616 that It is striking to observe how much better the Dutch soldiers have become than they were in the time of the Duke of Alba, or the others who have governed these provinces since then. One of them now is worth 20 of those back then. And King Philip III of Spain also became aware of this change in the Dutch soldiery, exclaiming to his viceroy in Goa in 1617 that We have tried many times to reorganise our troops in India in the European manner, 
since experience has shown that, without it, we have suffered important losses. But now that we are at war with the Dutch, who are disciplined soldiers, it is more important than ever. By the time of writing this correspondence, Philip III of Spain would have known that the Dutch revolt had become insurmountable. We will examine the stubborn mindset of the Spanish Habsburgs and their refusal to negotiate with rebels in later sections of this series, but it is worth noting that as the Dutch revolt gathered supporters both at home in the Netherlands and abroad from foreign powers, the Dutch reformed their military capabilities at the same time. At the turn of the century then, just when it seemed as though the allies of the Dutch, the English and the French, had made peace with Spain and abandoned them to fight the Spanish alone, the Dutch had developed a new method for carrying on this fight, which would pay dividends in the future. As Geoffrey Parker noted when attempting to address the question of why the Eighty Years' War, that is the Dutch Revolt, the war between Spain and the Netherlands, why this lasted 80 years, this war had very unimpressive beginnings. In 1574, Geoffrey Parker wrote, only about 20 towns, with a combined population of 75,000, remained faithful to William of Orange. Amsterdam, the largest town in Holland, stayed loyal to the king until 1578. Even at that comparatively minute size, with all the millions in income and manpower that King Philip II of Spain boasted, Madrid could not crush the rebels. If it could not crush them at their weakest state, then how much more incapable of defeating them would Spain be once the Dutch gathered their countrymen together, were led by innovators like Maurice of Nassau, and developed such revolutionary tactics as the drill before using it against the Spanish for the first time? While the Battle of Newport is glossed over today, it was the first, most important test of these new methods, and it vindicated Maurice's ideas and work in the years before. With the advent of greater firepower being brought to bear on the Spanish, and the increasing demands this placed on the Dutch citizen if he was to carry his instructions out, it was only to be expected that Maurice authorised several new methods for making the citizen into a soldier as seamless a transition as possible. One of these methods was the countermarch, but even after Newport, the countermarch continued to pose some problems to the Dutch infantry. Not only was it the antithesis of the gentlemanly code of honour to be seen to walk away and almost retreat from the enemy, but it was also an act which required a great deal of bravery. One could very easily be shot in the back as they walked, and we can imagine the Dutch soldier sweating heavily as he counted down the seconds while his back was exposed. Once he reached the rear of his unit to reload, he would be safer before he was exposed at the front of his line again. The hope, of course, was that by the time it was the turn of the first rank to fire again, the enemy unit would have been so demoralised and decimated by this firing tactic that they wouldn't be able to withstand any more. The spectacle of a constant hail of shot pouring across the field was demoralising and confusing enough, especially in the early days of the tactic when it was not very well known or understood. To us, it would have seemed like the 17th century equivalent of a machine gun, and this high rate of fire guaranteed the reduction of importance of Malay troops as a result. It also made the tactic the talk of Europe, and it virtually guaranteed... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. That others would seek to emulate it. Much like the Spanish use of the tercio, though, French, Swedish and even English efforts to replicate the drill might have been admirable, but efforts to duplicate it were not. It would take some time before the culture of drilling instituted by Maurice would spread to other states. However, one aspect which helped this process along was the aforementioned publishing of several illustrated manuals on the drill. The French proved one of the most enthusiastic adopters of the drill, beginning under Louis XIII. By 1629, the French had what was called the Code Michaud, which regulated the discipline, administration and regular training of the French soldier, so that he would be capable of taking part in the fire-by-rank drill and countermarching tactics of his Dutch peers. It was certainly fair to state that the French imitated the Dutch in this regard, but for this they should be admired, since as we have seen in the English case, not every power was so eager to embrace the new reforms. The drill and act of the countermarch brought forth a familiar idea once again, the importance of forbearance. Forbearance was the ability to withstand the fire from the enemy for longer than he could withstand yours. That was the simple explanation of it at least, but it became critically important with the act of the countermarch because it required a well-drilled, well-oiled military machine to command the different human pieces on the board and ensure that every piece knew its role. In 1639, Louis XIII established the Royal Academy for War Exercises, a place where captains could send their newly levied men to be drilled and educated in the ways of war. As we know, this process was rapidly accelerated under Louis XIV, who was, in many ways, Europe's greatest proponent of the drill. Just as he achieved his majority in 1661, Louis XIV issued an ordinance which required drills take place twice a week, while manoeuvres for entire garrisons were ordered once a month, so as to maintain the training and core lessons. In 1667, the Office of Inspector General for Infantry was created and filled by Jean Martinet, whose name has become a byword for rigorous discipline and drill, and who represented yet another bright French light, whom Louis XIV was immensely fortunate to have in his employ. 
So we've been talking for a while about the Dutch drill and we've been delving into 17th century warfare. But I want to talk to you guys about something else entirely. I want to talk to you guys about Pinyol. What is Pinyol? Well, Pinyol is Poland is not yet lost. And you might have heard about it because we've been talking about it before several times. Hold on a minute, this doesn't feel right. Let me just press this button here. Ah, there we go. That's much more like it. So Poland is Not Yet Lost is a podcast series that looks at Poland, Lithuania, or the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, in the 18th century. If you want to know why Poland-Lithuania ceased to exist by 1795, and if you want to know what role Poles played in the 18th century, when the likes of Catherine the Great, Frederick the Great, Peter the Great, Zachary the Great, can't blame me for trying anyway, But if you want to know where all these people came from and how they interacted with Poland, and if you want to hear a story that's pretty much never told, then make sure you go over and sign up on Patreon for $5 a month. If you weren't aware, you can listen to the introduction episodes and the first episode of this series absolutely for free. Just literally go to the previous episodes that were released in this podcast feed, and they'll be right there. Otherwise, click on the link in the description below to start your journey to Poland is not yet lost. You should also know as well that if you do that, you'll be accessing the back catalogue of the extra feed. You see, for $5 a month, you don't just get Poland is not yet lost. You get everything else we've released just to patrons. Which includes everything from a mini-series on Louis XIV's arms and armies, to a Jan Sobieski biography series, which is now available to $2 patrons and above, and series called 1956, which investigated, among other things, the Suez Crisis, where Britain basically made a hames of pretty much everything. Let's just say that if you thought Brexit was bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. Patreon is the best way to support this podcast monetarily, and it's because you guys have been supporting us so well, especially in the last few weeks, when a lot of you have signed up to access Poland and prepare yourself for what's to come. Because you guys have been able to do this, I'm pretty much able to do my PhD. This podcast and the support I've received of it means the world to me and I couldn't do any of this without you and I know people say that a lot but it's literally true everything I've done since we joined Patreon has been possible because of your support how else could I justify all the ridiculous amount of time I spend on talking to myself for a living I couldn't and I could not do this without you if you want to contribute check out Poland and if you're interested but you haven't made the leap yet then why not listen to the preview episodes to get a feel for what's to come For the next several years, the Thirty Years' War and Poland is not yet lost, will be forming our series output. It'll no longer be the case where it was before, where we had several episodes coming out a week. We're toning it down because we're focusing on other things, like adding three more letters to my name. And you can help by heading over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. That again, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Thanks guys. Now let's get back to the episode. So the French adoption of Dutch tactics appeared to suggest that such peoples, followed then by Swedish soldiers under Gustavus, represented something akin to the cutting edge of military thought and practice. On the other hand, you have the so-called lethargic Spanish, who still bumbled about with their tertio square formations, and they were easy to malign as backward, and their subsequent decline was easy to interpret as part and parcel of their refusal to modernise and reform with the times. 
This stark contrast is at the heart of Michael Roberts' thesis in the military revolution. But as Geoffrey Parker and others have noted, Roberts gave too much credit to the Dutch drilling by characterising it as an earth-shattering development. It was not so earth-shattering that the Tertios were abandoned, nor was it so earth-shattering that the Dutch won every subsequent battle and abruptly ejected the Spanish from the Low Countries. Granted, the Spanish famously saw their Tertios destroyed by the drilled Swedish and German troops at Breitenfeld in perhaps the greatest instance where Maurice's ideas were put into practice. And don't you worry, we'll be giving you a good account of that in a few weeks' time. But a Spanish Imperial Army more than made up for this defeat at the Battle of Nordlingen in 1634, three years later. And by doing so, they demonstrated that the Tertio was far from obsolete just yet. Indeed, it was not so black and white a case as the Spanish refusing to modernise. On the contrary, we've seen that several treatises written by experienced Spanish military personnel, urged reform and advised on the best new developments in tactics and drill in order to effect such reforms. Of course, the Spanish neglected to implement such reforms, whereas the Dutch under Maurice of Nassau enthusiastically embraced them. But even so, the Spanish did not lag behind. They were enough aware of the importance of the drill books, written and illustrated by Dutch authors between 1607 to 12, to make copies of them themselves as did the Swedish, Poles, English, French, and natives of Flanders. We might look at these imitations, and the resulting imitations of the Dutch drill in action, and wonder how and why the Dutch should have let their secret get out. Should those illustrated drill manuals not have been state secrets, available only to a select few? Indeed, such a concept as protecting these investments never seemed to have crossed Maurice's mind. Probably because he never believed that keeping such developments secret was going to be possible in the poorest courts and armies of the 1600s. All it took, as we saw, was a French mercenary unit transferring itself from Habsburg to Ottoman service for the drill to be known that far east, only a few years after Newport. And the Ottoman Sultan was well enough informed of European events to know about Newport in the first place so one can imagine how easy similar diffusions could take place closer to home. While these organic diffusions of information and technology and tactics etc. may not surprise us, it may actually be surprising to note that the Dutch were quite willing to sell their information and expertise in the years that followed their innovations. To the German states, the Dutch eagerly sold their knowledge and expertise in package deals which provided everything a budding German ruler would need to make his own well-drilled army. As Geoffrey Parker wrote, In 1610, Brandenburg asked for and received two Dutch drill masters from the Army of Maurice of Orange, and Dutch officers soon arrived to drill the militias of Baden, Brunswick, Hesse-Kassel, the Palatinate, Saxony, and Württemberg. In 1616, Count John of Nassau opened a military academy in his capital, to educate young gentlemen in the art of war. These Dutch tactics even spread to America, as Englishmen in Dutch service were chosen to act as governors of the colonies in the New World, and they brought with them Dutch ideas and tactics for training their militias, even while they then served England. This planted the new ideas into the Americas, and provided English settlers with invaluable tactics for dealing with troublesome natives as they expanded.
Indeed, it is worth dwelling for a moment on that question of the diffusion of tactics. Jeffrey Parker made the point that the image we have of businesses, for instance, jealously guarding their secrets or formulas or ingredients or blueprints, is a relatively new phenomenon, especially in early modern Europe, the notion that only one state would lead pioneering breakthroughs in technology was never really accepted, largely because of the sheer cost involved in spearheading any innovations which were made. The Dutch, for sure, developed and arguably perfected the drill, but by farming this expertise out to their neighbours, they didn't believe that they were strengthening potential enemies. Instead, they thought they were providing a wide laboratory for experimentation and improvement in these tactics. Not to mention, opening the discourse of these tactics up for greater debate, and hopefully, greater investment. In addition, we must remember that in the early 1600s, and indeed far before that, it was far from abnormal for foreign soldiers to serve in a wide variety of armies, and it could hardly be expected that these soldiers would not talk about what they'd been doing once they returned home. Even if he had wanted to then, and if he had wanted to, then he would have represented an anomaly in his era, Maurice of Nassau would never have been able to block the march of military innovation which he had initiated. He would simply have to do his best to keep pace with it, as would everyone else. So now that we have focused on the developments in terms of military tactics in the 17th century, it is largely up to you, the listener, to determine whether or not a revolution took place. Consider this, though. A soldier in 1530, serving as part of a Tertio Square formation, would have barely recognised the fire-by-rank method of soldiers which were harnessed a century later at Breitenfeld. On the other hand, Geoffrey Parker would accept that change had taken place, but that such change was far from total. Rather than outmatching the Spanish Tertios, these supposedly revolutionary developments in the drill were soundly defeated by them several times. The developments were important then, but apparently they were not convincing or effective enough to affect a total transformation in how all armies operated. The military revolution, so it would seem, was shaped by the inclinations of commanders on the ground, yet its lessons were also influenced by the ground itself. In line with this point, John A. Lynn notes that the prevalence of revolts in French society necessitated the creation and training of a disciplined French army, which had to be uniquely prepared for revolt at home and conflict with the enemy across its borders. Although it had a shaky start, the French army learned from its experience during the initial intervention in the Thirty Years' War, with the result that France's individual soldiers were that much more disciplined by the 1640s and 50s than they had been before, thanks to the domination of the military drill. Drill, of course, demanded a level of discipline from the Frenchman which would have been unheard of a century before, but it also made that soldier easier to control and more likely to follow the orders of his captain, his commander or his king. Wars cost a great deal more in 1600 than they had in 1500, and because of this it was necessary to reform one's financial systems in addition to one's armed forces. This challenge was particularly helped by the effective doubling of Europe's population between 1450 to 1600 and the resulting increases in the tax base, but taxation alone could not pay for the incessant demands of warfare on the state coffers, nor could the pillaging of resources from the New World, as Spain discovered.
mutinies were the outcome of this shortage of funds and the outgrowth of the military from the economic capacity of European states. We need only to think of Philip II's four bankruptcy declarations in the late 16th century, or even the terribly untimely mutiny of the unpaid Swedish army in 1634-35, to see for ourselves the consequences of increased costs in warfare. Yet, if the 17th century provides an example of the starkest chasm between income and military commitments, it also contained the point where the trend begins to turn in the opposite direction. Much like they had initiated the development of the drill, the Dutch innovated their notion of credit, backed up with the overwhelming financial cloud of Amsterdam, which became the commercial hub of the world by 1650. The Dutch political system, with its strong financial base, then proved capable of guaranteeing certain loans, and of always paying on time. Think of them as the Lannisters of the mid-17th century. They always paid their debts, and they also carried the debts of several other powers. Acquiring a reputation for solid finance, the Dutch stadtholder William III, also known as William of Orange, also known as the deliberate or accidental creator of the Orange Order, brought these ideas with him when he became King of England in 1688. Parliament, that is, the Parliament in London, guaranteed the state's debts, the Bank of England was established, and a sophisticated stock exchange was also created. With greater financial organisation, England and the Netherlands proved capable of supporting larger armies on the continent, far out of proportion to their population sizes. If the Thirty Years' War had provided the warning against overspending for the sake of short-term gains, then the conflicts which erupted later on in the century such as the Nine Years' War of 1688-97, to or the War of the Spanish Succession, which followed almost directly after it, from the year 1700 to 1714, demonstrated how intertwined state finance and warfare had become. While these innovations were inherently Dutch in character, they soon became common practice, and along with the Enlightenment and the opening up of new lands to Europeans, these developments combined to place the West in a position of primacy it had never enjoyed before. Fortunately for the West, their soldiers and militias were also armed with the right weapons and trained in the correct style to seize and then defend these precious acquisitions from the natives, not to mention one another. Considering the revolution in economics, military drill and military engineering which shadowed the Dutch war with Spain, it may be wondered whether, instead of speaking of a military revolution, we should be speaking of the Dutch Revolution, which was supercharged by the Eighty Years' War. It was from that conflict that so much innovation, experimentation and theorising was sourced. And it was from this platform that Dutch ideas and ingenuity placed their small republic in the corner of Europe in a position of unrivalled progress, power and wealth. So in this episode we've looked intently at the Dutch and exactly how much they are responsible for. In the next episode we're going to continue this examination by looking at something you might be very excited about. We're going to be looking at exactly what another famous character, Gustavus Adolphus, did and how he contributed to our understanding of the best way of making war. I hope you join me for that, history friends and patrons, in two weeks time. But until then... This has been the 17th Century Warfare Series Episode 9. It has been my pleasure to deliver this episode to you today. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.